Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 299, Most Essential Board Game Expansions of All Time. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, Anthony, we are back and we are back with the most essential board game expansions of all time. I know that is certainly a topic I love to talk about as I tend to purchase the expansions with the base games, which is completely unadvisable, but <laughs> I do it anyway. Yeah, I actually didn't realize how many expansions I had until we uh, started outlining this episode. And then I didn't realize how many of those expansions I have never played, and it made me sad. So it was actually, I was like, oh, I've got dozens of expansions. This would be easy. I'll just pull all my things out and see what's the best on the list. And I was like, no, I have hundreds of expansions. I've maybe played dozens. <laughs> how many of these are essential? Oh. <laughs> But I guess that helps narrow down the list because then you know which ones are actually good. Absolutely. And we have a great list for you. I think just ever so briefly looking over this list, Anthony, neither you or I are including all of our miniature expansions, correct? No, I intentionally avoided those because I don't feel like any of them are essential. Okay. Good right? point. Good point. I like that. You got Arcadia Quest. You got 47 expansions for it. I'm like, well, I still got Arcadia <laughs> Quest. I've got Imperial Assault. It's fine. I got all the expansions for it. Which one would I even say is the best? I don't know. <laughs> so... Yeah, there's a lot of miniatures out there. There's some super big miniatures that are shouldn't even be called miniatures, but no. nonetheless, there's a lot of good stuff out there. But we'll have a lot of fun talking about that on our feature review. So stick with us because I think that's going to be. Uh, a talk that we usually don't have very often, but is, in fact, essential. All right, Anthony. So there's a lot that's going out there. I thought I'd stop for a second and mention something a little outside the mainstream as far as cardboard or tablet. I want to talk about Netflix for a second. I think I mentioned to you about this Netflix series. And since it's board game related... I think it, you know, deserves a moment in the sun. And I'm talking about The Queen's Gambit. Have you had a chance to see it yet? No, no. It's on my list because you mentioned it like almost two weeks ago, I think, when it came out. Sounds good. It's been on my, like, I think I even had it on my preview list before you mentioned it. So I definitely want mm. to. just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, The Queen's Gambit is about this young orphan girl who grows up in an orphanage. And goes on to become a chess master. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's literally on the cover <laughs> of the next flicks image. So, and she, of course, runs into troubles throughout. But I think one of the most interesting things about this uh, limited series, I think it's about seven or eight episodes, and it's about an hour for each episode, is the chess that's played is fantastic and realistic. And at no time is it just like insulting to, I guess, board game players and especially chess players like you see in a lot of movies. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I mean, just I love that we've reached that point where someone can actually do the research and do it properly. And it's not just, you know, all the usual stereotypes of, of what these games involve. Definitely. And and, and again, I think, you know, the, the, the series is supposed to be a composite of some of the greatest chess players of all times. Some of their moves come into play. You hear about all the different gambits and defenses and stuff like that. 
I'm a I'm a chess fan, but I'm not a big chess fan. I know you're a bigger chess fan than I am, but I I do believe that you watch this and you come away wanting to play chess. And I think that's really great because I think it's a great job here. You know, in, in comparison to, let's say, uh, James Bond Casino Royale, which was supposed to be all about the poker playing. And it's just like, oh, I have a great hand. Oh, I have a great hand, too. I have even a better hand. So it's never really about playing the game. Yeah, it's it's kind of a joke as far as that's concerned. But yeah, The Queen's Gambit, it's on Netflix. It's definitely worth the watch. It's a little long, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's it's relatively a PG-13 type of movie nothing really crazy there despite it's uh at least thematic intentions but uh yeah a lot of great chess being played all right anthony so that's what's going out on the large screen uh let's talk about what's going on the smaller screen let's talk about a little thing that we like to call bga live bga live yes sir uh every single week we are live on Wednesday. So today, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, This week, we got a really fun one because we're doing Concept, which if you don't know anything about Concept, it's basically charades in a board game. So you can play, I think, on BGA up to 12 people. I don't think we're going to have quite 12, but we should have a larger group than normal. And yeah, we're just going to go for it. It's going to have a lot of fun. Um, We're hoping to have people on Discord as well so we can have a conversation and talk through things and yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a little different than what we normally do. So make sure you tune in for that. I've always said this is the introverts charades. So if you ever want to play charades, but you never want to have to bounce off the walls in order to play it, this is definitely the game for you. So when this podcast comes out, hopefully you're listening to it on Wednesday, check out BJ Live, 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, and you can join the crew, especially on the Twitch stream, because that's where the fun happens. So go to Twitch. Go to Board Game Arena and you'll find us there. If by chance you weren't able to join us at that specific time, all of our feeds are uploaded on that same Twitch channel. So you can join us there after the fact. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with BGA Live happening tonight. But there's a lot of other stuff going on. Why don't you tell everyone what they should be looking out for? All right. Yeah, we got a, a few announcements here. Um, some reminders. <laughs> uh, first up, Tee Public. Make sure you hit up the Tee Public store we have on our website. Go to the very top of the site, click on the merch button, and you can order any of a number of different items that Tee Public offers with the BGA logo, the BGA Live logo, and our Anonymeeple, um, and all the different formats and colors that you could want. So check that out. We do get a, a percentage of every sale that goes through that store. So it is helping us. It's helping the store. Uh, it's helping the podcast, it's helping the live show, it's helping the website, and you get some sweet merch out of it. So that's pretty cool. We also have our big contest for the listeners' top 20 games of all time. Uh, that episode is coming out in two weeks, so the contest is ending soon. Uh, it is scheduled to end on uh, November 18th, the end of the day. Uh, that's the day our episode 300 comes out, so... There you go. Big day. Uh, but make sure if you do want in on that, if you want a chance to win one of those 20 games, um, you need to have submitted your name, email address, and 20 games, your top 20 games, in no particular order, if you don't want to do that, by the 11.59 p.m. on November 18th. So you can find that on our website. You can find that on our Facebook uh, page, facebook.com slash Anonymous. Just punch that information in and shoot it over and... Uh, we appreciate it. It helps us build the best possible list for that top 20 that we're doing in a couple of weeks. Nice. Yeah, we definitely want you to join us. And again, that's going to be a great episode. So 
Definitely stick with us so we can give you those big results. All right, Anthony, we have a little bit something else going on, too, that we want to let people know about. Obviously, our Patreon account. So it's thanks to the Patreons that we're able to be here each and every week with you. Thanks to the Patreons that we have better equipment. Uh, And then hopefully, thanks to the Patreons that we'll be able to produce more and more content on our live stream on Twitch later today. So again, shout out to all our Patreon backers. If you'd like to get some of the fun Patreon content, including special episodes, Slack, and also a ton of extra great stuff, please join us on patreon.com slash BGA. All right, Anthony, so that's everything for us. Let's get on to the episode, but let's talk about what our listeners are talking about. What's our question of the week? Uh, It's a trick. (laughs) There's no question of the week. I was going to ask, what are your top 20 games of all time? But obviously, that's the contest. So um, I was like, maybe I can trick people into entering by posting this on Facebook. And instead, I I just put a reminder up. There you go. Yeah. Fooled so you. We got you. <laughs> make sure you guys, again, put all that information in. And then final plug here, obviously, uh, next week, our top 100 of all time, episode 300. So many episodes. <laughs> We've done this a lot. So make sure you tune in for that. That's going to be a big, long episode. We're going to go through all of our top games of all time. And it'll be a nice precursor to your top games of all time in the following week. So no question of the week this week, but um, lots of good stuff coming up based on that. Lots of good questions um, you guys are answering for us. Unless you have psychic powers and you can mentally send Anthony your top 20 games of all time. Uh, but then I have to write it down. Don't nah. do that. <laughs> all of a sudden about three in the morning, Anthony's going to wake up going, what? Seven Wonders and Russian Railroads? What? Shakespeare? We're, he's going to have the weirdest dreams. Yeah, no, if you've, got a, if you've got a psychic connection with my printer, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's next level stuff, man. That's next level. All right, so that's everything that's going on with us. It's everything that's going on with you. Again, join us tonight, and we'll have a lot of fun. But, Anthony, let's get on to the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about our Acquisition Disorders. Yeah, Acquisition Disorders this week for me. I have two of them, but they're really the same thing. Um there's a pair of expansions coming out for Draftosaurus. Uh, Draftosaurus is, it's this cute little game where you take a handful of dinosaur meeples out of a bag and you pass them around and you draft them and place them on your personal board. There's like six or seven different locations on that board and where you place them will determine how they score. So you might only be able to put pairs of dinosaurs in one pen. Another pen maybe only takes one type once you place it there. Another one, maybe you put one single meeple in and you try not to melt add any more of them to the rest of the board there's a few different ways they score and so that's where the game comes in right um it's a fantastic family game it's very quick and easy to teach to the kids and it's relatively inexpensive it's like 25 30 dollars so i i think i reviewed it a while back but highly recommend it if you haven't played it yet super great with the kids two expansions are coming now aerial show which brings in pterodactyls and marina which brings in uh, water dinosaurs, uh, plesiosaurus. There you go. And (laughs) each of these brings in like a sideboard that connects to the main player boards that you get. So the aerial show, you get a double-sided board that goes at the top of your main board and it adds mountains. Um, Pterodactyls are the only dinos that can go up there and they each have like individual nests. And when you go to the nest, you get a specific bonus. Some of those are extra points. Some of them are immunities to the placement die which is a mechanic that kind of forces you where, where you're going to put things. 
Uh, you don't get like the flexibility if you're drawing versus when other people draw. Marina adds a new little sideboard to the bottom of it, uh, connects to the main river that's in the game. And this is going to give you extra points at the end of the game for having your plesiosaurus in the river. Uh, but you can also move them further down the river to earn more points. You're like unlocking pieces of the dam as you go. So it actually adds a little bit more functional mechanics to the board. Typically in this game, you play something on it, that's it. The, the entirety of the game is the drafting, which is great because it's perfect for like, my five-year-old plays this, no problem. And she's pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, but this adds a little bit more depth to it in terms of like, you play stuff down and you can move it around or you, you place where you place it determines what bonuses you get in, in the case of the pterodactyls. So I'm going to pick up both of these. Uh, they look really cool. And honestly, you can't go wrong with new different shapes of dinosaur meeples. So that's Draftosaurus. We got Marina and Aerial Show. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if there a way I could actually buy this game and bring it to game night and not be laughed out of the game night because I really love these little dino meeples. I actually like them even better than Dinosaur Island meeples. These are really adorable. Yeah, no, they're great. I, I mean, I don't see it as a kid's game necessarily. It just happens to be light enough that it's good for kids. It's like a spiel this yard weight game. So okay. it'd be a good filler. It takes like 20 minutes. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, dinosaurs, man. I mean, it's yeah. surprising that board gaming took this long to get around to like pumping out dinosaur games. I mean, as a kid, it was all about dinosaurs. Right? Yeah, and like, the only ones I can think of are like, you know, they're kind of scary. Like Triassic Terror, you know, like, yeah. you get, like the big dinosaur pieces and they're stomping around eating each other. And you're, it's still cool you're playing with dinosaurs, but this wave of dinosaur games, they're all cute and colorful and meeples and yeah it's pretty cool definitely all right well i want to talk about a board game that has long been a favorite of mine and in some ways i feel like i don't talk about it enough and honestly it should probably be one of my top if not my top board games of all time just because i've played it so much and so loved in my group that's concordia now if you don't know much about concordia it's basically trading in the mediterranean it's it's kind of like the definitive example of taking your meeples to different cities and being able to build in those cities by you know meeting the different conditions as far as resources that are concerned sailing your ships to exotic lands doing the same thing and what's really interesting and dynamic about this game more than anything else is is the card play because a lot of times when you utilize, you know, training in the Mediterranean, you get to take X number of action spots or maybe there's some sort of dice rolling in the game. But here, there's just so much more to the game than that. You are actually utilizing card play in order to not only move and not only build, but at the very same time, those cards themselves are going to be what, in fact, allows you to score points at the end of the game. This is a fantastic game from Matt Gertz and a very different game than some of his other games that we've seen previously. This is definitely probably, I would say, the most approachable of any of his games. It just allows a lot of people at the table. It has numerous maps. Now, the digital version here, you know, is going to be offered in a number of different platforms, including Nintendo Switch, Android, Apple, and Steam. So basically... However you want to get this game, you will be able to get this game. You'll also be able to play single player, multiplayer, and such. There'll be an AI in this game, which I'm interested to see how good the AI will be in this game because it's a, it's a 
it tends to be a you know challenging strategic game but basically the interface looks decent the screenshots look okay they have you know stepped away from the board format which i I gotta be honest with you i'm not thrilled about because one of the great things about concordia is with the exception of the cover artwork which isn't terrible but it's almost mockable in a way the rest of the game artwork the cards the boards the pieces itself are fantastic this digital version looks a little too busy and looks like a little you know just generally working a little too hard to make it understandable for people so i don't know but I'm definitely going to try it out because, again, Concordia is a great game. Plays with a lot of people, a lot of skill levels, and, you know, a ton of maps out here. And it looks like this expansion will actually have those maps as well. That's awesome. Yeah, this is a game that I, I own a bunch of stuff for, and I've not played it nearly as much as you. But I do like it quite a bit, so that'll be cool to have the digital version. Absolutely. All right, Anthony, so that's everything that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. And we'll let everyone know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and they should avoid them. Or again, as the year runs out, those games are 2020 and they are lost to time. So what do you have up for us this week? All right. I got a chance to play the newest Stefan Feld game. Um, there are two that came out this year around the Essen period. One of them is now available here in the States. The other one is coming in about a month. That is Castles of Tuscany. So this is the one I was the most excited about when it was announced because it is a sequel to the Castles of Burgundy, which is his his most effective and popular game of all time and one of my favorites. This one, however, is a little bit different. It uses some of the same mechanics. But really, at the end of the day, the thing that's the most same is you're placing tiles on a board. And when you place them, they do something. That's about it. Like a lot of the other things are a little bit different. So we'll go through that. But the game itself, it takes place in Tuscany, of course, in I think the 15th, 16th century. So during the Renaissance, you are all princes. And so you're trying to build the most beautiful domain, right? So you're putting in towns and villages and monasteries and all sorts of cool stuff. None of that really matters a ton in the game. Like... You are getting marble that you extract that you can use to like take extra turns. There are villager meeples that you get that allow you to replace cards. But for the most part, you know, it's just play some cards, play some tiles, get some resources, spend some resources, do that kind of stuff. You have a, a little tiny player area made up of three tiles. Each of these tiles is, I believe, 10 uh, hexes on it. So there's like 30 hexes total. And each of those hexes represents one of the types of land um, or buildings that you can create. You also have 21 of your own tiles. Everybody has their own tiles that they that they get um, that represent these different types of buildings. And then there are some neutral tiles at the, in the middle, right? Um, you have a player board that tells you what all the action bonuses are. Um, and you also stack your tiles on there. And this is actually the timer for the game. So when you take your turn, you can do one of three things. You can draw more cards into your hand. You start the game with, I think, four or five. These are how you're going to play tiles down. There's no dice in this game. Um, You have cards that represent each of the different tile types. You have to play two of them to place a tile onto your board. You can also play two of any other type to replace one of those. So you have some flexibility. And then the villager meeples, which you get from one of the types of tiles, can also replace a card. So one of your actions is to draw cards. 
Uh, by default, you draw two, but there is an ability to upgrade that and get three or four or whatever. Your second option is to take a tile from the center of the table and place it on your player board. Um, at the beginning of the game, you have one storage spot, but you can get a second storage spot or even a third. Again, like any of these actions can be upgraded through another action. <laughs> so you take that tile, you store that tile. Similar to what you would do in Castles of Burgundy, except in this, you can only store one to start. In that, you could store three. The third option is to place that tile onto your board, um, which you that's when you spend those cards. So you've got the cards in your hand now. You've built up your hand. You've got some tiles. Now you can spend the cards, place the tile onto your personal tableau, and where you place it will determine what bonus you get. So you have to place adjacent to something else. You're going to start the game with one castle, just like in uh, Castles of Burgundy. And so you have to place around that in one of the um, six spaces around it. And you are going to get some kind of bonus. So the orange tiles give you villager meeples, which replace cards. The mines give you marble. Um, you can spend one marble on your turn to take an extra turn in that round. You have the the shipping tile. or No, it's not even the shipping tile. I think it's like a village or something. But you get like a little hexagon, blue hexagon. That's basically a wild tile that can place anywhere on the map. Um, as long as it's adjacent. You have tiles that give you extra card draw. There's one that lets you draw from this special, like a yield deck. And these yield cards have like bonuses on them. Some of them have points. Some of them have um, other resources, whatever they might be. And then the red ones, which are cool, these give you the upgrades. So this will get you these little tiles that you place next to your player board. And that makes future actions more powerful. So like draw more cards, get more tiles, get more marble, whatever. And then, of course, you'll have one or two more spots for castles. And castles just give you that extra bonus free action like it does in the in Castles of Burgundy. You get points every time you fill in a section, similar to Castles of Burgundy. You get one point if it's a section of one, two, or three points if it's a section of two, and six points if it's a section of three. Um, they only go up to sections of three because it's a small little board. And then if you complete all of the colors on your board, you get um, the bonus similar to Castles of Burgundy. The first person to get it gets more points between two and four points, I think. And then you flip that tile over and then it becomes worth one point for anybody else who gets it. All of these points are tracked on this green track on the circular um, scoring board. They continue to go up. But when somebody completes one of their stacks of tiles on their personal board. So like when you take a tile from the center of the board, you place one of your tiles out there. And so once you've done that seven times, it triggers a scoring round. And then once somebody does it 14 times, it triggers another scoring round. And then 21 times, it ends the game. But when you do that, you transfer the green points to the red track, which is your actual victory points. And then it continues. So, for example, like if I had four points and Chris had five points on the green track, we get to the first scoring. Now we have four and five points on the red track. Green keeps going up, though. So maybe next time it's 20 and 25 we add those 20 and 25 to the red track. So it's cumulative. It like builds up. Like you can get whatever points you had in the first round, you're going to get three times. And whatever points you had in the second round, you're going to get twice, if that makes sense. Getting ahead early, very valuable <laughs> in this game because those points are worth triple effectively. I like it. I think it's a fun, quick spin on some of the mechanics in Castles of Burgundy. I guess I was expecting a little something heavier, even though people had said it was kind of a lighter game. It took 40 minutes to play with teaching and checking the rules a few times. It's very, very fast. You just knock this thing out very quickly. With four players, I could see it being done in an hour once everybody knows how to play it. 
that's not a bad thing. It's just it's not a big meaty game. Now, Bonfire is still coming, and that looks to be the big meaty game from Stefan Feld this year. So I'm not complaining necessarily. <laughs> and this is one I can play with the family. There's no text on anything. The mechanics are very simple. All of the actions you get from your tiles are printed right on your player board. So it's not like, you know, I just want something more, I guess, out of his games these days. But at the same time, it was still pretty good. So I'm going to give I'm going to give Castles of Tuscany a play. It's not quite a buy for me. You're still getting like a Leia style component. So the components aren't fantastic. The they're fine. You know, they're Castles of Burgundy style components. They're not the worst. They're not the best. The card drawing mechanic meant that you know just a lot a lot of turns of just drawing cards and rotating things around so it gets a little samey at some points there are opportunities to chain things together get bonuses place extra actions out that does happen but not very often right maybe a handful of times during the game so you do often feel like all right i'm gonna do this so that i can do this so that i can do this but that's three separate actions so it takes you five minutes right so you get that kind of feel to it. Kind of like the middle of like a game of Merlin or something where you're like, I don't feel like I'm building on what I'm doing. So Castle of the Tuscany, decent game. Definitely in the middle there. I like it. I'm going to keep it. And I would have kept it, I think, even if it wasn't a Feld game, which I collect. But definitely in the middle range of his games for me. Not at the top of the pile. Not Bonfire and, and not the other ones. But his recent games have been, I guess, more on the light side. More on the kind of... I won't say that they're unrefined, but they're definitely not as overtly complex. Right. They, so I don't know. I, I guess this is like for artists out there that they have a season or they have a period of games where <laughs> this is the thing that they're doing. And it seems like overall, this is the thing that he's doing. So, you know, I'm I'm not terribly surprised that the Castles of Tuscany is lighter and a little more thin. I, it reminds me of like Carpe Diem or or Forum Trajan or even even Merlin for that for that example. Yeah. All all kind of that same weight class. Yeah, I think it's I would say it's comparable to yeah Carpe Diem or Merlin. Forum Trajanum's a little bit more, but a little sure. messier. Um, yeah, th- this period, like, and I would agree with you. Like, all going back to the Oracle of Delphi, it's been kind of this consistent um, like weight of game. Um, yeah. Carpe Diem is my favorite of all those. Like going back to 2016, really? um, okay. like since Aquasphere. Yeah. I, and I like Merlin quite a bit. So like Carpe Diem, Merlin, those are good. But Carpe Diem is one that's grown on me a lot. Uh, I really enjoy that game quite a bit. This one, I don't see growing on me as much because there just does. there's not that kind of depth to it. Um, sure. Carpe Diem has a depth to it. And there is like some variability, especially in the scoring mechanic in that game, which I love. Yeah. This one, it's going to be the same every time. Now, the your personal board is random, and there are three separate tiles. So that's always different. The tiles that come out are always different. I'm not saying there's like the game is samey at all. It's just the actions are the same. So, and the the cards are very flexible. So it's not like you're trying to work within the dice mechanics like in a Castles of Burgundy. So sure. it's fine. Carpe Diem's better, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely on that like bonfire. Um, rush though like he hasn't released a game that big since 2014 so i'm all about it gotcha all right well a game that was recently kickstarted back in 2019 i was able to get in before the pandemic hit this is a giza shifting sands edition so this was the big kickstarter that re-implemented and refreshed the original version now in this kickstarter version you actually in fact get both boards so you can actually play 
the original version of the game itself. So primarily, the game is all about taking your ships down the Nile because the Pharaoh is is looking to find who his best builders are. And he requires monuments and all types of buildings, including the pyramid and such. So you start off with four ships and you get to decide on your turn how far down the Nile you're going to start. Typically, the better stuff is towards the bottom, almost always towards the bottom. So you, of course, may want to place down towards the bottom, but that means that every other ship that comes afterwards has to come below that. So think to Kaido, where you can jump ahead to the good stuff, but that is going to lock you into only a couple of spots that you can take. And of course, your opponents are going to take their actions as well. So throughout the game, you are going to be placing your ships, and there's, of course, a number of different options. The board is basically a Nile River that splits down the middle. On the left side, and this is in a new version, you're going to have an obelisk. You're going to have, of course, the pyramid set up there. And you're going to have all of the different additional statues and monuments you're going to be able to build. So as the game moves on, you're going to be able to build new and bigger monuments throughout the game. But again, it all comes down to what resources were you able to claim. So primarily, again, with the new expansion, the Colonnade, which is all of these different pillars, is going to be the biggest part of the game because there's a lot of scoring potential, including additional bonuses. So on the right side of the board is primarily where you're going to pick up cards, which are going to give you special abilities to move your ships around, to be able to pump up and power up your workers, because you're going to have four workers in the game. And as you build up these different workers, you're going to be able to utilize their individual strengths or their combined strengths to be able to meet a certain task. But you only have four. So your building will be limited there. So you definitely want to be able to support your workers so that an individual worker can do a lot more. Now, when you actually play the game, your individual player board is going to have your four workers, which are represented by tokens. And it's going to have a like a power-up kind of structure to it. So throughout the game, you'll be picking up cards, hopefully, to power up your workers. But as you do so, and as they become stronger and there's more of them, you also have to feed your workers. It's another one of those games. So there's a kind of a balance there as far as the game goes on about being able to produce uh, enough wheat in order to feed your people. And then there's a stone track on the bottom that is going to be essential for building any of the monuments in the game. So again, on the right side, you're building up your special abilities and towards the bottom, you're going to have an opportunity to gain special victory point cards or goal cards that are going to give you a little bit of an element to how to build up your strategy. And as you build up your cards, some of the cards will give you additional stone at the start of every round will give you additional grain at the start of every round. And there's a really interesting mechanic that goes into the game. There's an irrigation ring. So it's almost a little bit like evolution where if the season is way too hot, you're not going to be able to produce as much food. The same thing occurs here. So certain cards are going to benefit or not benefit based upon the waters of the Niles for that particular round. So the game goes on and you're picking up the Sphinx cards, which are going to score you points. 
the statue cards. There are going to be some special goal cards. And then eventually the game comes down to an end. And then you're going to score points, again, based upon how you build up the colonnade, the obelisk, the statues, the pyramid, all the different various different statues you could build in the game. And then your special bonus cards that are going to give you those secret bonus points only for you. This is an interesting game. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Tokaido. The idea that you do want to score points, that you do want to collect certain things, and having to challenge yourself about how far can you press your luck, how much can you give up in order to get what you need. But there is typically enough options, whether it's on the left to actually build and try to build quicker in order to score more points and gain special abilities, or on the right and gain special card abilities and gain additional resources. So I really love the idea that there is tableau building resource collection throughout the game, and it is somewhat a standard worker placement game. The new version is beautiful. Again, as I said earlier, you'll be able to play the old version board, which basically just removes the colonnade and has, you know, some minor things here and there. But throughout the game, you're feeding your people and and your people are helping you build up uh, Egypt in order to impress the pharaoh. And, uh, you know, that's a Giza shifting sands, especially the Kickstarter version. I'm going to give this game a solid play. I really did enjoy it. I was surprised. It's not that difficult. I would say it's probably around or a little bit heavier than a gateway game. I don't think there's anything complicated about this game whatsoever, but it is definitely one of those games that is very simple to learn. And then once you learn it, it's very hard to master. It's pretty. Yeah. Like I, I've, I feel like a lot of the times these Egyptian style games are very brown and gray. Sure. <laughs> so it's it's nice to have some variability there. Like it looks nice. Yeah, a lot of colors in the cards that add to the game and a lot of ways to win. It's not just like, oh, build up the pyramid. It's like, oh, maybe you got a lot of cards or maybe you build up the colonnade. So a lot of statues, a lot of things to build up and overall a very fun game. All right, Anthony. So that's the games that hit the table. Let's go on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the most essential board game expansions of all time. This is a very important list as far as I'm concerned, because a lot of times base games hit the market. They're good. Maybe you like them. Maybe you don't. Maybe they're just okay. And then they find their way in the back of your collection and never come out again. So an expansion can bring a game back to the table. And expansion can hopefully improve the game and, at least for me, earn essential status. In fact, there's been a lot of expansions that have been so essential that they become part of the base game for future reprints. So, for example, there are a lot of games out there like Bruges that's recently been reprinted that came with expansion. Kingsburg that had an expansion that was very hard to find now being reprinted with the expansion. So there's a lot of examples out there right now. So we won't cover those because those have kind of like risen to the top ranks. But we wanted to give you an idea of what expansions you should pick up, especially if you own the base games. So, Anthony, you talked about this a little bit earlier. You're a man with a lot of expansions that don't get much table time, huh? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what I found like going through this list is I will get an expansion when it comes out even if I don't play that game very often. And a big part of it is a lot of these things, especially for Euros, go out of print instantly, right? Yeah. There's a few on this list we're going to talk about that are out of print, and hopefully you don't want it because they're very hard to find. And that's just because like 
they they don't sell a ton of copies of Euro games, or at least they didn't used to. And then they print even fewer of the expansion and people want it and too bad, right? Kickstarters help with that with some of these. But yeah, that's a problem. So I buy them even though I don't know if I'm going to play them. So there's a bunch of those. Um, and then other ones, it's just you bring it to the table and people, you know, there'll be one person at the table who hasn't played and they're like overwhelmed. They're like, oh, don't, don't add all the extra stuff. Or someone will say, oh, I don't like those extra modules. Let's just keep it simple. So it is difficult to get everything out. The ones that made it to my list are ones where I won't play it unless we play with the extra content because it is that much better. And especially if I bring it, I'm like, no, we're playing with this or, or not, or I'm not bringing my game. Sorry. So Anthony, why don't you start us off? Yeah. So for me, this is like way at the top of the list. I know it is for you too. Uh, Russian railroads, German railroads. Mm-hmm. So Russian railroads was like instantly one of my favorite games when it came out, but I recognize that it was slightly broken in a few ways. German railroads added a bunch of stuff. You had Germany game board. So these were flexible and had some uh, like modular things in it. So it wasn't always the same board. You had a solo version, which I've now played dozens of times. Uh, It was fantastic. And then the coal module, which for reasons I just mentioned, I haven't played a ton, but uh, it is very good, right? Absolutely. It's one of those expansions that really opens the game up. As you mentioned very briefly, the game was really like, these are the best choices, one, two, and three. The Cole expansion really opens the game up big time. In fact, I really feel like that's what led to First Class, which was another game of his that came after this that utilized a lot of the German Railroads expansion material. All right. So for me, again, a lot of great expansions out there. A lot of them are essential. Let's talk about a little old expansion that really deserves to kind of get some mention. King of Tokyo Power Up. Now, this was a great expansion for a lot of reasons, but in particular, King of Tokyo was all about playing Yahtzee with monsters. Now, that's awesome. So right there, it's good. (laughs) Uh, But it never really went far beyond that, in particular, because you had these really cool monsters, and you're like, I want this one, I want that one. But they never did anything unique. You did get to pick power cards up, but that's it. The Power Up expansion allowed each of the monsters in the base game to be able to have their own special set of cards. So when you roll three hearts, what you could do is flip over one of the power-up cards. It would give you a ongoing bonus or a one-time shop bonus that was like really powerful. It wasn't much, but it was just enough to make King of Tokyo a much, much better game. 100% agreed. Yeah, this is... I don't think I've played this without this, honestly. Maybe once or twice before my son could read, but yeah, yeah always got to be in there. All right, so another one for me um, that became essential almost immediately when it came out is Terraforming Mars Prelude. Um, there have been four, maybe five expansions now for Terraforming Mars, and some of them are good. Some of them are fine. Some of them are actually not good. <laughs> um, it, they're all over the place, much like the game. Um, and I love the game. But Prelude does something very important. It speeds the game up. So you get a collection of Prelude cards at the beginning. You're going to pick them like you would anything else. And you're going to have two of them that you start the game with. And these give you asymmetrical powers. Maybe they, you bump up on a track, which moves up your terraforming rating. Or maybe you get extra uh, production somewhere. Or maybe just more money or whatever it might be. You choose these in combination with your corporations. And, or your corporation that you're going to pick. And it all synergizes together. And it just such a nicer way to start the game versus just starting from zero and slowly building your way up. Like, I feel like it cuts down a round or two of that build because you have something to work with and something to work towards. So 
I would not play this game without Prelude. You have to have the draft and you have to have Prelude. Everything else, it's optional, but those two things have to be there. I absolutely agree. I think Prelude was missing from the base game in the worst way possible because that first couple of rounds, it was very painful to get that game going. And Prelude just just blows through that doldrum at the beginning. It really gives you a great game. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely essential. All right. I want to talk about another expansion and an absolute essential expansion, even though we do love the game so much. The Voyages of Marco Polo. We played this on BJ Live. We played The Voyages of Marco Polo 2. But Anthony and I were just waxing nostalgic about the greatness of this expansion, The Voyages of Marco Polo, Agents of Venice. Now, when you played Marco Polo originally, the original base game, it was a lot of fun. It's one of the best games of all time. But one of the big challenges of the game was that, again, it was a little slow to start and it really had a hard time you know traveling so obviously marco polo 2 was all about traveling but nonetheless with this expansion you're going to get an additional player board eh, good or bad but really what you're going to get is a whole separate part of venice in which you can travel on the travel is cheaper easier to do and a lot more fun throughout the game in addition to that you're also going to be getting new characters and that's really one of the most fun parts of marco polo in addition to that the agents is really where the game comes into play because typically you had one move, get resources in order to fill contracts and or move. Here, the agents, which was a whole separate section of little minor boards, were going to give you a special ability for that round that was going to pump up your actions, make it easy to travel, or gain additional resources throughout that round. Once you were done with that agent, it went back to the pool, and somebody else could take them, or maybe you could take them again. So it really allowed you to do a lot more with your agents in The Voyages of Marco Polo. Yeah, this, this thing's fantastic. This is one of those ones that I do have a little bit of trouble getting out, because, again, people will just don't want all the extra stuff thrown in, but... Um, if I just put it on the table and start building it and people don't realize it's part of the game already, it's happening. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this one is one of the ones I mentioned that's out of print. So hoping hoping that they reprint Marco Polo with this in the box someday. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that would be the best way to do it because it does feel like you should just have this. Definitely. I agree. All right. Next up for me is Lords of Waterdeep, Scoundrels of Skullport. This was, I believe, our very first review on this podcast. Yeah. Um, all the way back in 2013. And Jeez. so our very first essential expansion. Um, yeah. So Lords of Waterdeep is fantastic. It's like one of the best um, gateway worker placement games. But it's samey in a lot of ways. Like it was fine. It was good. I enjoyed it. But this expansion made it really good. Um, and so you had two modules here. You had the Undermountain, which just gave you some, I don't know, some bigger opportunities uh and potentially some bigger challenges but it wasn't like anything amazing like this expansion alone would have been like okay cool more stuff to throw on the board but the skull port expansion added corruption so corruption is an, a new resource that you pick up you know in addition to the adventures and the gold that you're getting that is worth negative points and the amount of negative points it's worth is how much total corruption everybody took so if you by yourself just took like five or six corruption they're worth a little negative points, but you probably got a lot of really good stuff for it. But then if everybody else takes one or two and pushes that way up the track, 
those, those negative points you have maybe just turned into double the negative points and you didn't even get anything for it because other people did stuff. It's such a clever press your luck kind of thing. And then as a player, you're constantly looking at everybody else. And you're like, well, you all have more corruption than me. So I'm safe to take a little more because you're losing more points than me until somebody finds a way to get rid of their corruption with, you know, some quest card that they took. So it adds just this essential layer to the game that makes the game more engaging, more interesting, a little bit meaner, which is great in a game like this. <laughs> like, Because in the original, the meanness felt arbitrary with those mandatory quests and stuff. This is different. This is just, you can see what people are doing and you know it's coming and you can't stop it. It's fantastic. So if you're going to play Lords of Waterdeep, get Scoundrels of Skullport. It's fantastic. All right. Well, another fantastic expansion, or should I say expansions, are the two first expansions that came out with Seven Wonders. Now, Seven Wonders has a lot of expansions now. We could talk about the Tower of Babel. We could talk about Armada. But really, the two essential expansions that you need to have when you play Seven Wonders is Leaders and Cities. Now, when you play Seven Wonders, there's not much that you can do to your opponents if you're playing a larger than a three-player game. So other than military, you're kind of stuck. Cities added a lot of devious elements to the game and typically would tax or steal from other players throughout the game. So it, it was gave you the ability to hit the other players that you couldn't reach normally. It was essential for that interaction. Leaders, on the other hand, gave you starter leaders to kind of like build up a individual specific type of civilization. It gave you a starting path. You didn't have to use the leaders. You could collect them and then trade them for gold. But basically, the leaders gave you a starting point, like Prelude, and just like bolstered your actions up right from the start. The artwork is fantastic, and it's so thematic to the game that you actually had these wondrous leaders in your particular cities. Really, two essential expansions. I play with them both each and every time. They're even built into Seven Wonders on the app game, so... Yeah, absolutely. Leaders, cities, seven wonders, all one game. Yeah. I don't even know what comes with each of these expansions because it's always just always in the game. So yeah, <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, oh, the leaders is the good one. Wait, is that the good one or is it cities? I don't <laughs> just they're all in here, right? OK, we're good. They're all in there. Definitely. Um, all right. So for me, uh, another one here was Shakespeare Backstage. So this is not like the biggest, most popular game in the world, although it is one of my favorite games of all time. But this expansion in particular became essential to me because it took something that the original game removes from you and gives it back to you. Uh, so Shakespeare has a really cool bidding mechanic. You have these action discs and you bid how many of them you're going to use in a round. And the fewer you bid, the earlier in turn order you go. So if you really want to go first, you're like, I'm only going to bid two out of five, right? So you're only taking two actions this round. But they're going to, I'm going to make it, I'm going to get the ones I want. I'm going to get what I need, right? But then those other three didn't do anything. So <laughs> it was just like, oh, that stinks. This adds something for those other three to do. It opens up a whole new section, the, the backstage, right? You're putting on a play. Now stuff's happening behind the, the curtain. So there's new cards, there's new actors and new objectives, um, all sorts of cool stuff that you can do. It comes in a little deck box. It's not like a big, huge thing. I was thinking it was like $15 expansion. Well, well, well worth it. Like if you're going to get Shakespeare, you should get this with it. I wish it just came in the box. Unfortunately, it does not. You have to buy it separately. But it is in print again, thankfully. Like you can actually get this for a while. You could not. So. Yes. 
if you're gonna get Shakespeare, get backstage. Yeah, absolutely. This was out of print, and I was really bummed out about that because I know you love the expansion so much. I wasn't gonna pick it up without. I wanted to have the base game expansion all together. All right, so a game we played way back in the day was called Revolution with an exclamation point. This was actually a game that Anthony and I met over way back in the day, back in 2013. This is a game from Steve Jackson game that still holds up fantastically. Basically, what you're doing is a little bit of area control, but how you do the area control is very interesting. Basically, it's all about influencing the different people in the city, and all these different people can be influenced in different ways. So maybe it's by force, maybe it's by blackmail, or maybe it's just a little money on the side. So basically, you bid your tokens, hidden, and then you see who's influenced who the most, and then you'll be able to influence those particular areas. Now, these two expansions I'm talking about, they're very small, very cheap and inexpensive, and really a lot of fun in the game, both developed by Philip DeBerry. And basically what you're doing is you have the base game already. So with Anarchy, it's going to add a negative spot to the board. So in the base game, everything's scoring you points. It's just how many points can you score? Here, the Asylum and the Jail is going to score you negative points. Negative points means negative support, so you can't take over the city. But there is also a garden which is going to be able to support you and score you some additional support points for the eventual victory throughout the game. So that really mixes the game up a lot. Now, the palace expansion really adds the most to the game. So what you're going to be able to do here is six new bidding boards because there's four additional people to influence. This really opens the game up. There's not a lot of crowding now at this point. And there's an additional palace board that goes right on top to the main spot in the middle. There's a two, two additional player colors. So it adds more colors to the game, adds more players to the game. And again, there's more people to influence. And the palace board itself is worth the most support, of course. But there is an interesting guard mechanic to the game. So if you ever play Revolution, highly recommend playing with the expansions. All right, so the next one here I wanted to talk about is Lorenzo Il Magnifico, Houses of Renaissance. So just getting uh, howdy tidy there. This is the uh, only expansion for Lorenzo, and it adds a ton of stuff. Uh, the most important thing it adds is uh, player houses. So there's going to be several of these available at the beginning of the game, and you're going to go through like this special kind of auction, which actually influences how many resources you get to start the game, like, and the higher you bid, the less resources you get, which is a very interesting mechanic. But then you get this asymmetrical power that is specific to your house to play throughout the game. There's also a fifth tower that comes into the game with new cards. So these will have cards from all four of the other uh, towers. So kind of give it opens the game up a little bit where it was tight before. There are new leader cards and some new me mechanics there. There's new tokens that come out that give you certain combinations of things you can do with the cards. Um, there is a fifth meh. But, um, you know, if you want to play a longer game, the, the stuff is there to do it. But the reason this is essential to me is because of the asymmetry that it brings. The original game, you didn't really have any guidance. You didn't have anything specific to work towards. You just had the same cards that would come out every game in a different order, but the exact same cards in the towers and then the dice with the randomness. So this adds a little bit more variability um, some different card options in that fifth tower, although I wouldn't recommend playing with that with 
too few players because then the game's a little too open. And then, of course, the asymmetry that you start the game with, which is fantastic. So well, well worth it. Yeah, adds a lot to the game. And especially like you mentioned, now you know that there are cards coming out, but you can't be sure exactly what cards are coming out. And that's a big thing in a lot of base games when you know exactly what's coming out. It kind of ruins the game a little bit. All right, so another expansion that I want to talk about that's essential, and now we're getting into the expansions that are absolutely out there to fix a lot of games, is a recent expansion that came out from Wingspan. This is European Expansion. Now, while Wingspan has been well-touted as one of the best games from 2019, the new expansion obviously adds more of the same, not too surprising here, but what it also adds is new scoring options to the game. So if you've played Wingspan before, maybe you've been in that situation where you've played your best game of all time, but someone had two cards randomly put together that was just really good cards. And now they're pumping out victory points left and right, and you're just your mouth is on the floor, and you're like, well, okay, well, that was a game. You scored 76 points from Tuck Cards. I don't know what to do with that. So this expansion opens the game up, lessens those kind of super duper bonuses because what it's including is round and bonus abilities. So this really includes a lot more of the interactions with players and it benefits from now excess cards and food, which typically weren't scoring you points in the base game. And again, allowing you to kind of open up the different strategies so the likelihood that someone puts together a two-card combo is a lot less likely. And, you know, Purple Eggs. So, Wingspan, European expansion. I suddenly had a chance to play this one. I need to do it, but I think I got it too late last year. Um, and then, you know, COVID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, another one for me, um, for a couple of reasons, actually, is uh, Longsdale in Revolt, which is for Oh My Goods. Now, this is uh, an Alexander Pfister game. It's a small tuck box game. Oh, my goods. And this is the first expansion for that. There's a second one that just kind of adds on to this. Um, but this is the one that really made the change. Oh, my goods. Originally, it's a fun engine building type of game, but it always ended right when you felt like you were getting to something interesting. And the draw of the cards would certainly impact what you were able to do versus what someone else was able to do. Like it was a lot of cool ideas and they just didn't quite work. Longsdale and Revolt fixes a lot of that by adding a story mode, and which effectively changes how long each game is, right? So there are new buildings, then there's an event deck, and then 14 chapter cards. These break down into five separate chapters that tell a single story. The story is not particularly interesting, to me at least, but it gives structure to the game. It gives you a flow. Like if you've played any Fister games in the last like five, six years, you know kind of what you're getting into. It's similar to what you get in Maracaibo or, or um, any of those games, really, like the same kind of story. But the, the cool thing is that the game is now variable in length. There are specific things you have to try to get to. There's a solo mode. It opens it up a lot and adds a lot more depth to it. Then there's a second expansion on Canyon Brook. And then because of all that, he was able to build like a full board game out of it with Expedition to Newdale, which I really like, which kind of just resolves all of that maintains that story mode and is just a really solid game that I'm hoping has more expansions coming down the line. So if you played all my goods, if you're like, man, this is great. I wish you could just a little more. This is where they figured it out with long sale in revolt. And then of course it builds from there. So highly recommended. 
Well, another expansion, and I never thought I'd be recommending this expansion as an essential expansion, but Food Chain Magnet. Now, if you've never played Food Chain Magnet, you understand it's a big, crunchy game from Splatter. It's one of their best, if not their, if not the best game of theirs. And again, it's all about marketing food out to the local neighborhoods, seeing what they want based on your marketing, of course, and then providing it based upon their locations. Now, when you play Food Chain Magnet, again, you might run into a situation where you didn't make the right choice or didn't make the best choice, or someone, again, has a certain strategy down, and you're now in a situation where you're about to be beat for the next three hours. So, hey, how about an expansion? So, with this new expansion, the catch-up mechanism and other ideas. I never thought that they were actually going to use as a title, and they did. So basically, in this game, you're going to get all of the additional components that you need to play the game, and in additional employee cards. Now, beyond just the standard stuff that comes along with this, the reserve cards are opened up. By having new reserve cards, you're also going to have new milestone cards. So again, remember when I mentioned all those different strategies that are always the winners? Well, new milestone cards that you can play with and add things to the game. There's new map tiles. There's some special different areas as far as road tiles and freeways and things. So now you can even actually open up the board. So if something wasn't leading to you, now you could add a highway. And now it is. So again, some new rules, some new districts. There are also lobbyists in the game that can help you out. I mentioned the new milestones that are big. But really what this game comes down to is the new ways you can score points. So first off, there's coffee. So you can stop by at the coffee shops, or at least your neighbors can, and pick up coffees for additional points. That's big because sometimes you do need to collect as many small points as possible. In addition to that, there are new foods in the game. So there's kimchi in the game, which allows you to attract more people to your restaurant, even if it might be just a little further. So Again, the idea here is that people really want this, and if they're able to get it from your restaurant collections, then they'll pick it up from you. In addition to that, there's also sushi, and sushi is a dish eaten only by people in houses with gardens, and they will prefer it over any other food or drink, so people can mark it all they want, but if they have a garden outside, then they want sushi on their plate. In addition to that, there's also noodles. Noodles is really my favorite new food that's added to the game because sometimes you can't meet a certain order, but you do have the people in your general area. Noodles allows any other food or drink to be replaced, but at the same time, if somebody has the food that they want at the same kind of reach, then they're going to go along with them. There's a lot to kind of add to this game. There's a lot of additional pieces as this game goes on. But it's a lot of fun. And again, if you're not super down with Splatter, this is a good expansion that lets you enjoy the game, play in a lot of different ways, and hopefully pull out a win. Yeah, yeah. I I also picked this one up right at the end of last year. Didn't get a chance to play it before everything shut down. We actually had this in our 10 by 10 Food Chain Magnet. So we played it vanilla a couple times. And then, oh, now we can't play it all. So I do have this and I'm very excited to get a chance to play it. Hopefully soonish <laughs> we'll see so for me the next one up is ticket to ride 
And like the easy, boring answer here is 1910. Like if you have Ticket to Ride, get 1910 because you get bigger cards, you get the better goal cards. If you have Ticket to Ride Europe, get 1912, same thing. Do that, definitely do that. But if you want a map pack, of which there are now eight or nine, I believe, the best, in my opinion, is the United Kingdom and Pennsylvania. Now, we did like the best versions of Ticket to Ride a while ago, and, and this is what we talked about. But this particular expansion feels essential to me for two reasons. One, you have wildly variable mechanisms kind of thrown in here. On the Pennsylvania side, you have a stock share mechanism. It's very simple in how it's implemented. It's like you get shares of companies on routes when you complete those routes, and then whoever holds the most shares of a company at the end gets extra points. Simple enough. The UK map, however, goes even beyond that. It adds technology to the game. So you're going to be only able at the start of the game to build one and two train routes and only in England. And if you want to do more, you have to spend wild cards, upgrade your routes. Then you can start moving outside of England into other parts of the United Kingdom, eventually being able to like build these ferries and jump all the way across the water. It just adds a lot to this game. And I know a lot of the other map packs do that as well. But this one in particular, I think stands out. You know, I have not played all of them, so I can't say this is like definitively the best possible version of Ticket to Ride. But for me, this is the one that makes me want to play Ticket to Ride, even with gamer groups. So highly recommended if you haven't played this one yet. Uh, that's Ticket to Ride Map Cat Map Collection Volume 5. <laughs> Next is an essential expansion in so many ways. When Scythe came out on Kickstarter, we all knew it was going to be big, and it was. And it was a great game. It had a little bit of a Marathrash, but it was mainly a Euro game. And when you played the game, you're like, oh, this is nice. They have the different factions and some of the different abilities. And there's some cards that come into play. But otherwise, eventually it plateaued out like this was the best this game was ever going to be. Then Scythe came out with an expansion. Scythe, The Rise of Fenris. Now, there's been other expansions before. But basically what this expansion allowed you to do was play a campaign game. Now, I've gone to great lengths to not spoil anything as far as the campaign. And I don't want to do that now in case some people out there, again, because of COVID and everything else, haven't been able to complete their Fenris kind of expansion. That being said, let me start off by saying there's a lot more stuff in the game. Uh, in addition to that, there's a lot more flexibility to create different types of scythe. So partially, I'll give you a little bit of information. So close your ears if you don't want to hear, not spoilers, but there's a lot of modules in this game. And the modules in the game allows you to play scythe differently. And it lets you play scythe in a more asymmetrical way than you were able to do before. In addition to that, you can set the game up for the different victory conditions. So maybe you want more of a Euro game, or maybe you want more of an Amerithrash game. I'm not going to give any more information on this. You really have to trust me on this. Scythe, the Rise of Fenris makes Scythe a far, far better game than I ever could possibly imagine. In addition to that, I want to throw in a little tiny expansion, Scythe Encounters. So if you played Scythe, part of the game is running around and picking up these encounter tokens where you meet up with the villagers, and then you have one of three choices to gain resources or materials, and usually can be at a penalty if you're getting something particularly good. Scythe Encounters adds a little twist on that where the penalties and the benefits are much greater 
And the little story elements are a lot better, more hilarious, more devious and such. So it's definitely something that should have already been in the expansion. Because if you're going to do Rise of Fenris where everything's a little more geared up, it should have had encounters in it. But both of these expansions deserve to be in the base game. They're essential. I will never play Scythe without them. That's Scythe, the Rise of Fenris, and Scythe Encounters. All right, and the last one we've got here is War of the Ring, Lords of Middle-Earth. So this is the first expansion for War of the Ring, second edition. I believe there was an expansion that was kind of rolled in or separated out from the first edition, but this is the first for the second edition. It came out in 2012, and it introduced a bunch of interesting content. There's not a lot in this little box, but the stuff that's there is very interesting. So the thing about War of the Ring is that you are playing out the trilogy, right? So it's designed that way. The structure of the game is built that way. The characters you play through are that way. And it's not that the game gets samey at all, but it is interesting to think about like, well, what if this happened? Or what if this happened? Um, Lord Lords of Middle-Earth does that. It gives you like the Balrog who can suddenly be running around Middle-Earth or the Council of Elrond deciding, you know what, let's change up this fellowship thing. We'll do something different. The Keepers of the Elven Rings come into play. So things happen that don't necessarily happen in the trilogy, but it's with characters you know and situations that you know, and they seem like things that could happen, right? So the game comes with a bunch of new figures. Um, you get new characters in the game, like Elrond and Galadriel and Smeagol. You've got the Balrog, of course. Uh, there's new alternate versions of the Witch King and the Mouth of Sauron. New action dice come in. So you have like the Elven Ringkeeper's dice for the Free People's Player. There's some lesser minion dice for the Shadow Player. There's new versions of all the companions to kind of mix that up. <laughs> you get figures for Aragorn and Gandalf the White, which is great. So there's like different ways to play certain things, some rule tweaks, a handful of new dice, some new figures. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it adds this very just engaging layer on top of an already fantastic, amazing game. There's another expansion that's come out since then called Warriors of Middle-Earth. I like it. I don't love it as much as this one. I think this one is, as long as someone I'm playing with has played before, I will always include this. If they've not played before, I tend to leave it out so we can stick to the basic rules of the game. But this is one that will always be there. And there's a third expansion they're talking about as well, but I, I can't imagine like Lords of Middle-Earth is essential to War of the Ring. Definitely elevates that game to another level. All right, so there you are, the most essential expansions in board gaming all right anthony until next time this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you a seat at the table <laughs>